Welcome! The University of Central Florida's Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. And our guests, Katrina Powell and Tamara Nelson. This show is brought to you by UCF Foundation. Thank you. And welcome. Good to see you all again in this week's version of Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. Today, we are going to be doing a show surrounding women. And it's on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And, you know, violence against women and girls is one of the most widespread, persistent, and devastating human rights violations in our world today, remaining largely unreported due to the impunity, the silence, the stigma, and the shaming that goes around it. Women issued by, I mean, this Declaration for the Elimination of Violence Against Women is issued by the UN General Assembly in 1993. And it defines violence against women as an act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, coercion, or arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether it occurs in public or in private life. Today, I have two phenomenal guests that are gonna help support our conversation around the topic today. And first we have Karina Powell, who is a PhD candidate at the UCF Department of Sociology. Originally from Kazakhstan, Karina received a Fulbright scholarship to study in the University of Oregon, where she had graduate, graduated with a master's degree in international studies prior to joining UCF. Karina studied in Lund University in Sweden and interned in the United Nations headquarters, New York, and worked in universities in Pakistan. Her doctoral dissertation investigates how oil curse affects attitudes towards violence against women and families in former Soviet countries. She teaches several undergraduate courses, including patterns of domestic violence in society, sex and gender, sociology of deviant behavior. Karina is also working on a project in co-authorship with Dr. Amy Reckenwald that investigates patterns of non-fatal intimate partner strangulation based on Broward, Broward County's police forensic records examination. Next, we have Tam Tamara Nelson. I'm sorry, Tam Tamara. I keep messing up her name and I'm apologizing already. Tamara Nelson is a staff therapist at Counseling and Psychological Services, which is CAPS here at UCF. She's a licensed mental health counselor uh, was in the state of Florida, certified clinical trauma professional, and a registered yoga teacher with the Yoga Alliance. Tamara's areas of interest and clinical focus include trauma and abuse recovery, religious, spiritual concerns, racial trauma, substance use or disorders, and multicultural concerns. Tamara continually currently runs a therapy group for black identified female students at UCF and co-facilitates a community support group for black female survivors of interpersonal trauma. So thank 
you both for being here today. Um, sorry to Tamara, I keep doing that because I'm so used to saying Tamara um, for um, butchering your name today. Um, and that, so hopefully that does not see, be seen as um, me having some type of a act towards you, but my goodness, um, that name is now messing with me right now. Tamara, 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 I have to say yeah, it several yeah. times fast. All right, and so um, so how are you all doing today? What's going on? How's, how's life today for you two? Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, and it, it's Tamara. Tamara. And, yeah. And I, I guess like a mixture of feelings. Um, I, in some ways, I'm doing good. Some days are harder than others. I think with the combination of going through pandemic and, and working and um, especially working as a therapist, you're carrying kind of a lot of the weight of our, our clients as well as what we're going through personally. So it's hard to give a concise answer as to how I'm doing, but I'm here and I'm glad to be here today. Excellent, excellent. How about you, Kareem? Um, yeah, first of all, I just wanted to be, I really appreciate the invitation to this podcast and I'm glad to be a part of this important talk about such an urgent matter. I'm doing, I guess, well, um, I mean, I'm working from home. I'm working on my dissertation. As you said, I want to throw a candidate from the Department of Sociology. Um, it's a little bit better now because my kid now is doing face-to-face -face, uh, mode of studies. He's a kindergartner. So before that, he was at home, which is kind of <laughs> challenging. Um, yeah. You know, you can't really do anything for yourself while you have a little one on the side who needs your, you know, supervision and attention. Otherwise, um, um, thank you for asking. Um, we are hanging there. So what is your thoughts on today and, and the fact that it is devoted to um, to women, especially those who have been experienced violence? Um, what, 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 what comes up for you today? What do you think about that? Mm. Um, well, a lot. So prior to working for UCF, um, I was a therapist for Victim Service Center of Central Florida. So um, all of my work, clinical work at that time was focused on, um, you know, violence, different forms of violence, sexual, mostly sexual violence. Um, and the majority of my clients were, of course, um, women. And so just kind of preparing for today and reflecting on this day brought up a lot of my experiences working with that organization. And I do a lot of trauma work now at CAPS. And so I'm still seeing a lot of um, female identified students who have just experienced a lot of um, violence in their history, whether it be childhood or during adulthood. So it's a, it's a topic that's very, um, uh, near and dear to my heart mm -hmm. um, and I have my own experiences as well so it it's a it's a heavy topic but it's a super important topic right. um, I'm really glad that we are having the conversation so how does it necessarily present itself to um, UCF as to students at UCF how does that look have, have you heard or do you have some statistics at all on how um, women at UCF are dealing with this issue yeah, um, I off the top of my head, I don't don't have the statistics, but um, in terms of like my what I've seen in my room, um, it's 
and especially again with me being one of the trauma-focused therapists there, I, a lot of the referrals um, for students coming in for that reason, um, I, I see a lot of those clients and it's, it's just very, it's a very, unfortunately, a common experience okay. amongst college um, women. And, um, and even, you know, happening on campus, um, some have been um, uh, experienced violence from like faculty before. And so it's not even just like other students. So it's, it's just a very, it's a common experience. And, and so Karina, it comes in various forms. So it's not just maybe physical violence, but other types of, of violence um, is there to use it. That's, that's correct, yes. Um, violence, uh, especially intimate partner violence, for example, as you mentioned, disproportionately affecting women and girls around the globe. And it's not just physical violence. It could be um, emotional violence, economic violence, um, physical, uh, psychological violence, sexual violence. So it comes in many, many forms. Mm -hmm. And um, especially now during the pandemic, uh, as Tamara mentioned, um, it's, uh, it's affecting our communities uh, even stronger. Like I am as a PhD student, uh, I don't only do the theory and like analysis, I also keep an eye on what's going on around the world. And since my um, interests are also like um, set in outside of the US, I'm um, looking right. at different statistics. So the media reports from different countries describe an alarming increase in domestic violence incidents in some region during the pandemic. At the same time, other regions experience the opposite. Right. For example, shelters and police report sudden drop in the numbers of domestic violence cases that are reported. However, the experts in the field know that these are, that doesn't mean that the rates actually decreased. It actually yeah. means that the victims of domestic violence unable to reach out safely for these services. They're just actually, you know, basically um, locked up in the same room with the abusers. They cannot use the phone. For example, right. in Italy, in the very beginning of the pandemic, and in Italy uh, pre being affected pretty badly, so um, they did uh, notice the decrease in the number of reported cases, but, uh, I mean, the calls, not the reported cases. The, the calls to the hotline, the texting and messaging, they were over flooding. They were like just screaming SOS because they could not uh, reach out and actually talk to these people. So similarly in Florida happening kind of the same thing, like all the many, many counties, like including Orlando Police Department, Orange County, Osceola County, Center Police Department, they all were reporting the decrease in domestic violence. Um, cases. However, the shelters, like including Harbor House and the other shelters that are in Florida, they are reporting the increase in the text messages and the calls to the hotlines. So what's happening is basically many women are trapped with the abusers at home. They cannot um, safely reach out for the help. So this statistical paradox is um, kind of uh, the uh, intimate partner violence right in a hot spot, like putting all these uh, victims, uh, you know, in the center of our attention. That's what, uh, who needs the help. So how do we, um, when we are in our day-to-day -day, uh, routines, how to detect or what, what are some things that we can be on the lookout for uh, when, when we, we might suspect that someone is dealing with this type of violence? Right, oh, I'm sorry, is it a question for me or? Either, um, either one. Well, I, I can just 
go ahead and <laughs> done with my talking. Uh, so go both ways. I, I'm very glad you asked that question because this is very important. Um, one of the important solutions that might actually help to the victims of, um, of intimate partner violence, especially women, um, that the community should be more aware of what's going on in the house next door. Well, I'm not saying that we must spy on each other like all the time, um, I'm not saying that, but just right. simply apply this rule when you see something say something or do something. For example, okay. if you see a person in distress, you might ask if this person needs help, if everything is all right, you know, sometimes just showing the simple courtesy as a neighbor can save someone's life, um, specifically in domestic violence cases. And right now when, when they're trapped, all they could see maybe in like weeks or month is a neighbor when they're going to check the mail or, you know, take the trash out or something like that. So it is important to uh, just be aware of different signs. You know, it's not necessarily bruises right. because sometimes people cover the bruises or they just try not to show them, you know, um, so they won't be as visible, but, um, the emotional distress, um, mm -hmm. the fact that the person is not showing out, like not, not going anywhere, not talking to anyone. That not doing normal practices, so to speak. Right. Not doing things that you've seen them do um, in the past. Is there something that might be in their voice or, or how they speak? Um, are there things that we could be on the lookout for, code words or anything that we um, could be you know, mindful of when we're dealing with individuals? I'm not. I, I'm not aware about uh, specific like code words because it could be. It could work different to different uh, people. I mean, some people do try to reach out by writing little notes and trying to uh, give it to people to you know to to reach out for the help. Sometimes you just leave notes somewhere where people can see them. For example, the mailboxes where people can actually you know have an access to. So um, that's those are important signs are that should not be ignored. Um, you know, if you see something like that and just, just throw it away or ignore it, like, you know, try to reach out to this person and, um, who actually needs help. And it's also important to also check on your family members, like to stay in touch and support each other. I mean, this is a hard time, but we are in this together and we should be there for each other, like um, just checking on them because sometimes even with the families that, like, you know, everything looks fine, like from the outside, but then these people lost their jobs they drop right. in the same house. Um, the children might um, be, you know, they might might even uh, lose the access to the daycare and uh, some schools are also like on remote uh, learning mode. So um, all these conditions, they are waiting on these people, of course, like specific, especially economical, uh, you know, burdenses. So that's why uh, the, the violence can escalate or you know, simplex within the family. So that's why it's important just to be there um, and to check right the right on this. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tammy and Tamara, oh, I keep doing it. Now I'm going to mess up the whole show, aren't I? Tamara. Tamara. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell people um, if you're familiar with the show, Sister, Sister, I say Tamara like TNT. I'm okay, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it before the end of the show. Tamara, got it. I'm going to do it. But go ahead. Um, so I was just to, to add what Karina is saying in terms of like um, things to look out for. I think it also for noticing like the individual starts to withdraw or like is not communicating as often, is kind of isolating from family and friends. 
Um, that's definitely a big red flag because abusers tend to um, cut that person off from the most important people in their life. Right. So, but I think ultimately we we have to have relationships with people to even notice that something is different. Um, and that's where that community aspect comes in and knowing your neighbors, knowing your friends and actually talking to them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because a lot of times we do just walk past our neighbors, right? We don't even engage in any type of way. I see people all the time sitting with friends even and they're texting or they're doing something on their phones. They're together, but they're not necessarily communicating to one another. Right. So, so in the cases that you see coming into UCF, specifically students, but maybe there's, you know, those who are on staff as well. Uh, when you say they come in and they, and they do this, are they coming in because someone's bringing them? Are they on their own? Um, is it part of the hotline? Uh, what are some of the things that um, bring these cases to your attention? Mm -hmm. um, it's all of the above. Some, um, some people come because a friend or, you know, um, it could be a partner who maybe knows the person has a history of intimate, intimate partner violence. Um, we'll usually encourage them to seek counseling. So I do see that a lot um, when we're doing intake sessions. They'll say, you know, I didn't really want to come myself, but so-and-so thought it would be a good idea. Um, uh, faculty members have refer students. So a lot of times they're going to see, they'll probably be the first ones to see signs that something isn't right or, you know, the person's not coming to class or they're not submitting assignments. Um, and then they may check in with that student and then find out, okay, there's a history of whatever, or this person's currently in a situation, and then they refer them. So we see that a lot as well. So how safe is the facility once they get there? Um, you know, you know they, they're, they're already nervous about possibly presenting this type of information, but how safe are they once they're there and what happens? What's the process once, you know, they are in that situation? Right. Uh, so with therapy is a, is a confidential service. So everything that they're sharing in session um, is, is protected information. Somebody can't just call and say, hey, did so-and-so come or so-and-so a client there? Um, we never um, can con confirm or deny if somebody's actively a client. So they're protected in that sense as well. Um, so the confidentiality factor is something I, you know, like to emphasize to students so that they can feel some level of safety with um, pursuing services with us. Now there is a, a challenge with being in the age of COVID-19 and we're, you know, doing sessions virtually and instead of them physically coming to a building. So um, depending on the safety of that person's environment, um, that, that can be a barrier to um, seeking services. So sometimes we have to get creative with where they can have the session um, and not uh, pose a risk to that person's safety. So uh, they may possibly a scenario could be that they get followed by the partner mm -hmm. uh, and when they're going there. Um, what are the precautions that are in place for them? Um, just if that is the scenario. Mm -hmm. um, you, you said in a situation where maybe um, the partner is following them to? Suspicious, very suspicious of the fact that they're going somewhere, they leave the house 
and they follow them and they end up at CAPS or they end up somewhere where there's being services being conducted and they get there and someone who is the partner is, is there or, or, or enters the space, mm-hmm. what types of mechanisms do you have in place to kind of pre- to help them still stay safe in this type of a situation? Yeah, so if, and if we're talking about like a situation where they're physically coming to the CAPS building and not like virtual. Right. Um, so again, the once the client is in the building and in the room, um, nobody can just walk through the hallways. Like there's, the doors are locked. So it's not like a, a free roaming space. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, the lobby would probably be the only area where, you know, students could go in and out. And this is assuming we're not in a pandemic state. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so you have access to the police and other um, officials that may come in if something like that would occur. Right, yeah. So if a student expressed that, hey, I'm concerned that somebody's following me, we um, would definitely, you know, talk about, okay, do we need to call UCFPD, which is right on campus? Um, you know, we would definitely safety plan with that student depending on what the circumstance and what they're wanting to do in that situation. Anything to add there, Karina? Yes, I just wanted to mention that, uh, like, um, um, when I, while I was teaching um, at UCF, uh, I had several students reaching out to me um, that they were experiencing certain um, uh, problems with their intimate partners, and uh, um, actually, two of them were, um, you know, belong to LGBTQ community, and I just wanted to emphasize how um, it was more challenging, more harder for them to you know, even talked about it, because uh, I noticed some signs you know, of distress, and I uh, I was just asking how they were they doing, like, is there anything I can help them with, you know, and um, a person actually, you know, started talking and uh, mentioning that there are certain issues, and I always refer them to the victim services at UCF, uh, Christine Martin and her team, like, uh, we are always in touch, like, I invited them to my, uh, even to present during my classes, and I was, um, um, make sure that I talk about it during my class um, to let the students know that this is the services that are available, like basically 24 uh, seven mm-hmm. on campus. Um, and um, there are different um, things uh, that uh, they can be referred with, like anybody who is impacted by crime, violence and abuse can right. basically refer to the center. And um, so what I noticed is that uh, for the LGBTQ uh, community, it's, I mean, uh, victims of abuse, it's harder to reach out for help. So that's why um, I think it's important to uh, provide certain services. And I, and I know that we do at UCF, and Tamara will piggyback me here. Um, uh, we do have the specialists who, uh, you know, focus on specifically this group of people uh, and uh, provide a service that would be um, Know, applicable in uh, certain cases. And uh, again, a confidentiality issue, it's very important. Uh, we have the Title IX at UCF that we all um, have to follow. And um, like nothing, basically, if anyone referred to you, like with a faculty or a student, and you're referring them to a certain services, it will always stay like, you know, uh, between you and that person. Yes. So um, I think, I think it's like here at UCF, we have one of the you know, best, I think, service providers uh, in this kind of sense, because uh, I, I don't think I've seen 
this productive, prolific victim services anywhere in on the, in other campuses. So I was pretty impressed when I joined. Oh, you, you bring up LGBTQ issues, and um, just last week we we celebrated or we had the Day of Remembrance, Transgender Day of Remembrance. So how um, affected by violence is that community, and, and what are some things that we can be doing to support our transgender um, partners? Tamara, I guess you could jump in here. Dr. Mo, sorry, can you repeat the, the question? I just, um, when, you, when it comes to transgender violence and, and things along those lines, um, we just had Transgender Day of Remembrance last week. And so my question is, what are ways that we could be on the lookout and supportive of individuals who are um, dealing with violent situations um, from the transgender community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. and. You know, um, marginalized communities in, in general are higher um, risk for for violence, um, and I think there needs to be, and that's the the beauty of um, you know Trans Awareness Week is it's about raising the visibility and awareness, and I think that's part of um, part of what's important here is people need to be educated. They need to be aware of how serious of an issue this is um, because the trans community has not been protected in the way that they, they really need to be as a vulnerable um, community when it comes to violence. Right. Um, so I would say definitely um, being educated, knowing the statistics, um, the resources. So we have um, organizations community-wise and on campus that are designated um, for those communities, we have um, the center um, on campus, LGBT, LGBTQ services on campus. Um, even at CATS, we have a trans care team. So we have therapists that are specifically um, designated and have experience working with the trans community. Excellent. So having those safe spaces are very critical um, because marginalized communities, although most vulnerable, are a lot of times less likely to seek out help and support because they don't feel safe to do so and fear of being further victimized if they reach Excellent, thank you. Um, so Karina, your, your dissertation is um, in part um, dealing with this violence. Can you talk a little bit about what you're studying and what you're hoping to, to have accomplished with the, with the research that you're bringing forth? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so uh, I study intimate partner violence and currently I'm working on a dissertation that is dedicated to examining the impact of oil curse on social attitudes towards acceptability of wife beating in the former Soviet countries. Mm -hmm. Kazakhstan is one of them. That's where I'm from. So we kind of know the region, know the area. Right. So uh, what inspired me to pursue the project is that in 2017, the two, the two largest countries from the region, including Kazakhstan, where I'm from, and Russia, uh, decriminalized domestic violence, which means that there was a legislation, um, domestic violence at place, but then they decided they don't lo longer need that. So, of course, that's, um, you know, that uh, met huge international outreach and uh, people just, you know, especially the activists, the women uh, advocates, they were just, they didn't understand what's happened there. But um, there were lots of different factors, of course, that affected these decisions. And um, 
what I was interested to find out is how the society, the society actually uh, feels about that. Like, do are there any um, specific attitudes that support this kind of uh, decision? Because um, obviously, it was not based on certain surveys. You know, nobody asked people <laughs> before they did that. Realization, I mean. So, um, uh, and uh, while the oil curse, uh, it's, I just was looking to um, different angles to look at this uh, problem. And while I was uh, researching the region, I found out that um, there were some interesting um, transitional things going on there, including the curse of the oil, the petroleum curse, uh, which affects uh, specifically transitional, like developing countries that does not have a certain uh, political institutions at place that would uh, help to um, maintain, you know, the control that the the uh, distribution of the wealth. And right. what happened is that these countries um, are uh, negatively affected by the abundancy. So that's that's the paradox of oil. So instead of having the prosperous economies and all of that, um, these countries ended up having the higher rates of corruption, um, the bigger uh, gender equality gaps, and uh, all the other negative consequences, uh, including petroleum patriarchy, one of the uh, researchers Ross, uh, uh, Michael Ross argues that uh, oil also impacts uh, the way women are treated in the society and the status of women in the society. So I decided mm -hmm. to test this theory on um, attitudes towards uh, acceptability of white battery, um, basically applying the theory to intimate partner violence uh, uh, field which uh, never happened before. And I thought it will be interesting to find out if there are any, um, you know, um, if there is anything there. Uh, so right now I'm, uh, I'm done with my analysis, um, uh, proceeding to my <laughs> uh, conclusion and uh, um, discussion chapters. And there are some pretty interesting um, findings that I did not expect to uh, happen. So um, uh, I just, I just don't want to spoil the trailer. I would just say that, <laughs> I would just say like in general that uh, oil curse does in fact affect um, attitudes towards wife battery. Mm -hmm. And whilst there are some other factors that affect that, of course, and intervene, you know, cross, cross and uh, um, crisscross, but um, the theory itself, like basically being proved. So right. it was, it was quite an interesting project, and I'm pretty sure that it could be a it could be applicable in the other settings. Like I'm planning to do, uh, for example, the same for different parts of the United States. Like for example, the Texas, the Dakotas, you know, the mines, uh, mm -hmm. anywhere where um, uh, there is uh, abundance in the resources, and um, to see how does that you know affect the local, not necessarily social attitudes, but also might the laws, for example, right? We have like different, mm -hmm. like different states have different, um, you know, um, we have different provisions there. And uh, so I just want to see how that um, would play out. So thank you for asking. <laughs> Were the participants in your study, um, women? I, I, I take the, I, I work with the secondary data from World Values Survey. So I have like 18,000, like the, the survey was uh, taken in uh, 2010-2014, that's the uh -huh. wave six, and uh, the sample is um, about 18, 14,000 people, yes, from 10 uh, Soviet countries, okay. yes, out of 
2016. Excellent. So, um, Tamara, tell me how you um, integrate maybe some of the things that you do. I mean, you talk about yoga and what that is. Is there something that um, you utilize in that technique that supports um, some of the clients that you're coming in that are dealing with um, some of this abuse? Yeah, uh, so I, yoga, I've been doing yoga for like eight years now. Um, I'm originally self-taught and then I re recently became um, a certified yoga teacher. And um, just in my own practice, uh, it's very instrumental with easing, um, it, dealing with anxiety, um, being able to achieve a level of like physical relaxation in the body, being able to connect with the body. And when we talk about violence, um, you know, that's, that's trauma and right. trauma as well lives in the body. And um, so a lot of people who experience um, any form of trauma, violence, um, typically have a hard time relaxing or being calm and um, are often hypervigilant. So in my work with clients, I do teach a lot of like principles um, from yoga, a lot of concepts from yoga. So breathing, deep breathing, um, progressive muscle relaxation. So just being able to um, connect with the body, um, releasing tension in the body, even re reconnecting in the sense because another aspect of experience of violence especially sexual violence is um clients will tend to feel very disconnected from themselves and yoga is a great way of um, kind of reintegrating your connection with your body um so yeah that's some of the ways that so i see it as a an empowerment so to speak um so there's a way that women could be empowered um how does that maybe translate into leaving relationships or dealing um, more efficiently, if, there, if that's even a uh, way to deal with it, um, a person who is being uh, violated in such a manner. Mm -hmm. So like ways that someone can become like re-empowered after? Re-empowered, yeah, can yoga do that? Or just or how does counseling in general help someone move away from that type of existence? Yeah, um, so that can look, different for different people, but I know um, just at the most basic level as a, a therapist um, working with trauma, I'm very conscious of uh, choice, giving um, my clients the choice and control in, in the therapy room, um, how, what they want to talk about, what they don't want to talk about, how they want um, their therapy to look. And it, it starts there with being able to teach um, the client that they, they do have autonomy over themselves and they are able to make um, choices. And then that can also look like, you know, like you said, somebody leaving a, a relationship that's not um, serving them or that's not healthy, um, being able to create boundaries with toxic families and friends um, that right. are contributing to their well-being. Um, so regain control over themselves and being able to make choices that are in their best interests and even being able to plan for the future and having goals for themselves. Right. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk sometimes around um, a person um, not being able to leave a situation, um, the fear that's involved with leaving that situation or just the, how to take care of themselves and 
the role of a counselor is not to force anyone to leave a situation, right? It's to really support them in how they want to go about that, right? And so what are some of those situations like? And what can people expect when they go to a counselor um, when, when they're experiencing such um, traumatic situations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think it can be difficult um, to, for anyone, whether you're a friend, therapist, and seeing somebody in a, you know, abusive situation, abusive relationship, and, and internally we want them to leave, and, but that's not our, that's not our choice to make, um, and like you said, we're there to support them in the direction that they want to go in. Um, so that's, you know, number one, and I, I think we also have to understand that there's, it's not easy to leave an abusive situation. There's so much that goes into it. Um, there's the risk to their safety. Once right. somebody leaves an abusive situation, that's the time where they're most at in, in harm's way or most at risk. Um, there's the financial aspect. If they've been financially dependent on this person, how are they gonna support themselves? Um, if there's children involved, that makes things very complicated. Right. There's the psychological aspect of you know being under somebody's control. You may not have the confidence um, to leave. You may have a lot of fears. So there's just a lot that has to be processed and worked through, and a lot of planning that has to happen for someone. So, so I can imagine that moving into that type of a realm of the possibility of leaving is is traumatic, right? I can I can sense that in terms of that. But there has to be some success stories that you have kind of come across. And what are some of the things that people can look forward to? What are some of the things that women who are dealing with these types of violent situations can kind of also put into their heart, right? So maybe fear of leaving, you know, what will I be able to do? How can I protect myself? How can I care for my children and all those other things? But there must be success stories that they can also kind of be aspirational for those who are in that separate situation? Is that even a, a part of the, the counseling situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there definitely are success stories. I've worked with many clients who have been able to get out of um, abusive uh, relationships. And so, And there's so many, there are resources that are out there to, to help um, women, since we're talking about women, um, to get out of you know these situations and just also knowing that again coming to a therapist um, or a domestic violence shelter or where, whatever resource we're not here to kind of rip the band-aid off or force you into something that you know they may not be ready for at that moment and just knowing that they have control over that process and this is a gradual thing um, so I think just knowing that maybe will help some um, individuals have a little bit of ease of starting the process. Yeah, that's a perfect role modeling too. I think what you just shared, like, you know, they have control. Mm-hmm. And so if they can even take that baby step moving forward, like, I have this control right now. I can control my existence. If I can control it in this space, then maybe I can do it in my home as well. Right, exactly. Very powerful, very powerful. Karina, um, what are your thoughts? Yes, I just I, I just wanted to piggyback a little bit on what you guys were talking about um, and the, the control part that you, Dr. B, brought. I think um, 
I think usually uh, victims of um, intimate partner violence, they come to services when uh, violence escalates to a certain point where they understand that they are in danger. Um, sometimes they would just, they would stay for years and years tolerating the violence. And sometimes they don't even recognize this as a violence anymore. Um, that's why, like, I, I believe, uh, Tamara, if uh, uh, you guys are using this, uh, the, viol uh, the violence will, the power and control will, um, that's what is actually uh, shows what kind of, um, uh, you know, what kind of signs of the violence behavior uh, exist to, um, to, to show the victim that she or he is in actual um, violent situation, like things like using coercion and threats, using intimidation, using emotional abuse, economic abuse, male privilege, children, uh, using isolation there um, for the pandemic, for example, it's getting worse with that one, uh, minimizing, denying and blaming. So this whole thing is just what's in the middle of it is power and control. So basically this person who is, um, you know, try this person who is uh, the, the abuser is trying to maintain the power and control of their, the, over the other person using different kind of ways. And sometimes like being tolerating this for years and years, the person sometimes not even realizing that he is or she is trapped in this kind of, you know, um, situation. So that's why it's important um, to raise awareness about this kind of issues, to talk about it openly, to uh, assure that there is a confidential um, support uh, in our communities, like for example, we're talking about UCF or we're talking about Orlando or Florida, that, that, uh, we, that the people are there, the uh, professionals who are there, um, ready to help and uh, ready to uh, provide certain resources, maybe for the first time, or maybe just even to realize, uh, to show this person that this is the situation that it might escalate to um, something very dangerous for your life and maybe life of your children. So um, I'm sure you, you, you have that uh, on place, Samara. Uh, as I said, uh, UCF, we have the best services in this regard. So, you know, it's really interesting that you brought that up because my next question was really going to be about children and those individuals who have seen this type of violence in their lives as children and then grow up and get right into that almost same type of situation in their own relationships. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what that's like. And have you ever had situations where you had a, a person who was being in that type of a situation bring their children to counseling as well? And what does that look like? And, and you know, is there something that can be helpful that they can empower each other to kind of break the cycle? Mm. Um, I, well, I personally don't work, I haven't had a lot of experience working with children. Um, most of my experiences with adults and, and some teens, teens and adolescents, but um, in terms of like children who are in, in that situation where they're witnessing um, violence, like there's a high correlation between um, people who are in um, violent relationships that maybe have like a history of um, childhood abuse or witness violence in their home. So in a, a large way, it does um, sometimes become like a, a pattern, um, a cycle. And, um, and a lot of that has to do with when you're used to seeing something um, that becomes normal for you. So when you get into a relationship that's mimicking what you saw in your home, then there is, um, like Karina said, you may not even be aware that this is a, a, an abusive situation because it's just it's normal. 
Um, so I, and I think that's a part of why um, ending this, this whole, um, this pandemic, I would call it a pandemic of violence against women is so important because we have to stop those, um, those cycles uh, from happening. And it's very detrimental uh, to children. It impacts, you know, how they're raised and the type of relationships that they get into when they grow up. Um, but that's just my thoughts on like children when it comes to these situations. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, when a person is trying to try to protect themselves and then they have the challenge of having to protect their children on top of that, um, that that also plays into the psyche of how they deal with a situation. Um, so when you have a client that comes in and, and really is not thinking about themselves, but they're thinking about their children, what does that look like um, in, the, in the counseling room? Yeah, um, I, in my experience, um, sometimes that can be a reason uh, sometimes a, a person that has children that's in an abusive situation may want to actually stay in a relationship because they they want the child to have a two-parent home. So sometimes it can become a factor why they actually stay. Right. Um, and so th there's that, that part of it. Um, and then for some people, it could actually be their motivation to leave because they want to um, protect the child. So it can... It can look different in different um, situations, and then it can also become a complicated factor with how to get out of the situation if they don't have the financial support um, to care for the child. Right. So, can you, either of you, talk a little bit about the success stories and what has happened to some of your clients or some of the people that you know who have been able to break the cycle? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, one thought um, of a experience I had of a client came to mind, um, a client that had a, a long history of abuse in their family and then was coming um, the first in their family to actually seek help um, mm -hmm. for their own um, history of intimate partner violence, sexual trauma. And, um, so we did a lot of great work together and kind of examining uh, those family patterns and then working through their own trauma. And then that client actually, um, in the time that we worked together, became uh, got married and um, became pregnant. And, and that was just, it was just a beautiful process to see this person go through their own stage of healing. And then to also talk about, you know, how they want to do things differently for their own their child um, that was coming into the world. Um, so that, that's yeah. one example that came to mind, but I've had a lot so blossoming, of- You know, you, 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 you leave an abusive relationship and then you still find love. You're still able to open yourself up to mm -hmm. being able to be in a relationship with someone else as you move forward. That's right. beautiful. Um, you know, so it's not about men and we only have a few minutes left, um, but there's, there's relationships when um, women and men are both in abusive situations um, and um, same-sex partner um, relationships where, you know, there's abuse in that relationship. How different is it um, that men experience this abuse 
versus women, or is it basically the same um, in terms of the psychological impact? Hmm. Um, men, it, I think there, we, there needs to be a lot more conversations centered around men who experience um, violence, abuse, because um, they are a lot less likely. I, I even think the statistics are probably not even accurate because a lot of men don't come forward or report um, their own instances of, of abuse because of societal messages of what it means to be a man and how um, they fear they may be perceived if they come forward um, with information like that. So that that's definitely an area that um, I think needs a lot more work and um, awareness surrounding. I agree with uh, Tamara. It's uh, like we already mentioned that uh, how hard it is to a certain um, you know, uh, to certain people to reach out for the services, like for example, LGBTQ, uh, and also men is one of the uh, vulnerable actually population because uh, usually, as Tamara mentioned, they uh, do not even reach out for help because you know because of a social stigma, because of the other um, factors that might you know affect um, their relationships, their status, and things like that. So uh, it is important not to forget that intimate partner violence is not just about women. I mean, it is disproportionately affecting more women and girls and that's what our conversation is about today yeah. but men are also need to be acknowledged the male victims male survivors as well um yeah. not only homosexual but also heterosexual relationships those yeah. who are suffering from violence so you know we talk a lot about the things that are you know when we, when we think about ipv and we think about uh, what that looks like we, we talked about what mainly is in the, in our public view, right? The intimate partner violence, the sexual violence, the harassment, rape, or things along those lines. We don't necessarily talk about it in terms of human trafficking. We don't talk about it in terms of female genital, gen, genital um, mutilation. Um, and we don't really talk about child marriage. Those are also parts of, of what is seen as violence against women. Um, how come you, those things don't necessarily get as much um, airtime, so to speak. And what can we do to support um, those causes as well? Those type of violence that you mentioned, and including sexual abuse, like and rape, those are very important as well. It's just um, I'm I'm studying intimate partner violence, so that's my topic. But yeah. uh, and, and human trafficking, like that's one of the main topics because Orlando is a hotspot for the human trafficking, and uh, we have big coalitions uh, who work, uh, you know, specifically about this topic. Uh, the researchers, the um, you know, the practitioners. There, there are so many people involved. There are organizations around. Uh, uh, the Florida state. So uh, the, all these topics are very, very important, um, you know, in, in terms of when we address the violence against uh, women and girls. And uh, you also mentioned like uh, genital mutilations uh, in yeah, certain countries. Right, they're almost against them in certain countries. They're still on, and then uh, there are there are things as uh, child marriage and uh, bride kidnapping. that are still like going on in certain parts of the world that oppressing um, young women and girls, uh, and mm -hmm. basically you know put them in a certain uh, violent trap in a violent relationships for the rest right. of their lives. So all of that uh, said, uh, and United Nations also. Um, 
um, mentioned that I think it was over the decade, uh, the attitudes towards violence against women dropped like to like from 75%, but there are still so many issues that it needs to be addressed, that needs to be heard, uh, needs, that society needs to be aware about. Um, and as we said, as, as a community, um, there are so many things that we, we can do to prevent yeah. Um, yeah. violence. Excellent. So we've, we've got a few minutes left and I wanna give you guys a chance to um, talk a little bit about um, you know, your platforms and what you seek or what you hope for um, women, especially women experiencing this. But before we go there, are there um, some hotlines or are there other information or websites that we can kind of provide for, for people to kind of know about who are not necessarily aware? Um, well, some of my favorite resources, uh, well, first, victimservicecenter.org. Um, they are the uh, rape crisis center for um, Osceola, Orange, and Seminole County. Um, and they also provide services, long-term uh, counseling and advocacy services for survivors of crime, sexual violence. So any form of um, any crime or sexual violence. And they service everyone, men, female, um, non-binary, trans, all, everyone. And um, there's also, I really like loveisrespect.org. It's uh, a website that provides a lot of information about um, what is healthy or unhealthy relationships. Uh, they're very like gender inclusive, uh, very inclusive of the LGBTQ plus um, community and the way that they um, write their information. Um, so I think that's a great resource for people to learn more about the signs of abusive relationships and what is healthy. Um, RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org is um, a national, national sexual assault um, organization and they have a, a national hotline um, for folks. And um, I really like the Women of Color Network. Um, they focus a lot on violence against uh, uh, women from minority groups. Mm -hmm. um, and their website is wocnic.org. So again, that's Women of Color Network and they have a lot of great information and resources specifically um, centered on women of color in violence. And so we know we have caps on UCF's campus. Is, is yes. there uh, also uh, a place for staff members to go to if they are administrators, if they have experiences in this, in this area? So CAPS, um, we specifically service uh, students, the student body. Um, so you have to be an active student at UCF to receive our services, but um, there, and as somebody commented, there's um, EAP services that is for staff members um, who need uh, help or support. Yes, thanks. Uh, anything to add, Karina? I just wanted to mention that victim service, the UCF Victim Services uh, provides uh, services to students, faculty, staff, and sometimes even visitors to campus. And uh, they also have their uh, it's, uh, their phone available day and night, 24-7. It's 407-823-1200. And uh, like Tamara is already, already providing so many resources, all I wanted to mention that there is also a Florida Domestic Violence Hotline at uh, 800-500-1119. That is like a general hotline and a Harbor House that is like a 24 hour hotline 
um, also 407-886-2856. Excellent, excellent. And we'll make sure that we have those, that information attached to the archive footage as well. So definitely thank you, appreciate um, you for sharing that information. Uh, any last minute thoughts before we close out for today? Um, I just want to say, like speaking from a uh, therapist perspective, I just really want to encourage um, any survivors out there of any form of violence to, you know, to seek to seek help. Like these, um, that trauma doesn't go away. Um, not thinking about it, trying to sweep it under the rug, doesn't make it go away. Um, and if you know, seeking help, you can recover, you can heal from these experiences. Nice, thank you for sharing that. All I wanted to add is that um, I, I just wanted to refer not only to survivors of domestic violence, but just all of us um, to be aware of what's going on around us, to, uh, to you know, to be aware of what's going on uh, right next to the house of yours, to your neighbor, to your friend, to your family member. Just uh, let's be support more supportive of each other, uh, knowing this hardship that we are in, that we're not alone, that we are all together through it. Um, Yes, and thank you so much, Dr. B, for the invitation to this podcast. Thank you for being a part of this. Um, you know, when you just said that just now, you made me think, you know, um, while you can't say any type of violence is um, more important than the other, um, you know, it starts off small, right? It starts off very, very small. Mm -hmm. um, a person starts to see what kind of controls they can have over someone and maybe it escalates or, or elevates to a different level. Um, so to be on, a, on the alert is really important. And you talked about that in terms of watching behaviors. If your friend was a certain type of a way and, and you're starting to see a change in that behavior to kind of maybe not jump to IPV right away, but at least to being in mind that, you know, if I'm going to be a good friend, um, I should be aware of just inconsistencies that may occur um, and that might lead to something that's a little bit more um, challenging. And I can imagine that that is in a whole lot of different ways that people showcase anxiety. It could be from breaking out. It could be from, like you said, hide, wearing different types of clothes, right? You notice that their whole wardrobe has changed um, that may be doing something to hide something. So. Just being alert and being aware doesn't mean that there's a problem, means that you're being a good conscious person um, with regards to the people that you're dealing with. So I thank you both um, so much for taking the call and, um, and being a part of this today. Uh, Matters of Diversity with Dr. B is really kind of geared towards um, trying to put this information out there. And so I think you both did a phenomenal job and um, I just appreciate you so much. So Karina and Tamara, um, we're, we're going to close out today and, um, and I look forward to uh, possibly chatting with you all again um, as we move forward um, and not just this particular topic, but maybe anything else that could come up, uh, but y'all would be interested in being a part of the podcast. All right, so thank you. And um, we're gonna just call, out, call it a day today. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you.
Thanks for listening to our show, which is brought to you by UCF Foundation. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.